you don't have to wait for a global pandemic to make a change. I never want to consult again because it's the corporation that sucks, not the employee. You know, when you're in survival mode, you have two choices. 2020 sucked. 2021 is going to suck as well. But there's one big difference. And I'll tell you, people are still not ready for it. What is legacy, right? It's about being able to know that you changed the life of at least one person for the better. Joseph Jaffe is a serial entrepreneur master provocateur, innovator, and author of five best-selling books, including his latest, Built to Suck. He has been featured on CBS, ABC, Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, USA Today, Fortune, Newsweek, and many others. Joseph says that every company sucks and is destined to fall. He says that the key to success is to suck less. He has the solution, but for those who are smart enough to listen. Joseph, it is amazing to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. You're, you're painting me out to be uh, this, uh, the, the apocalyptic, uh, you know, the grim reaper. Maybe I am. Maybe I am. Well, I will say that I do talk about the coming corporate apocalypse, which mm-hmm. you should not say three times fast, especially when you've been drinking. And, and there are four horsemen because every good apocalypse needs four horsemen. And so, you know, for a corporation, it is size, age, being a public company and culture. But that's, you know, another story uh, for another day. I actually want to get to know you a little bit. And I want to turn the clock back before you were Joseph Jaffe of today. Tell me about 14-year-old Joseph. What was he like? Right, he, he, he was fat, period. I saw recently a digitized version of my bar mitzvah. And I can only say that I never realized that my mother was a sadist based on how she dressed me up and how she combed my hair to the side. So, you know, the the 14 year old Joseph was, and even like a couple of years younger, I was overweight, struggled with weight my whole life. Mm. And I remember when we would play soccer at school, it was always the A team and Joseph versus the rest. So for some reason, I was like adopted as a mascot. So I was never, I was never bullied, but I always had a lot of friends. You know, I was a bit of a class clown, you know, so I was very social, still am very social, but probably, you know, always the sad clown, right? Inside, maybe a little bit sadder than I was on the outside, just because of struggling with weight, I would say. And I would say throughout my youth, never really lived up to my potential. I was a little bit lazy, maybe took my intellect for granted. There was always that idea of, are you bright, naturally smart, or do you have to work hard at it? And what I didn't realize at the time, but I realize now, is that there's no shame in hard work and there's no shame in, in working hard. And if you get the same result, whether you are bright or whether you worked hard, the result might be the same, but maybe there's even a little bit more appreciation for someone that had to work harder to end up with the same results. So what did you dream about becoming when you grew up? 
think maybe like most boys at the time, I wanted to be an astronaut. I've always actually been just fascinated by space. I'm a Trekkie, you know, X-Files. I've always loved the mystery of the universe and intelligent life out there. And I don't know that I had ambition or that I had clarity or focus about my life and my career until I read from my textbook from Philip Kotler's book. His book was one of my assigned textbooks at college. And that's when I knew I was a marketer. Fast forward to present day, I turned 50 on December 24th, and I had Seth Godin and Philip Kotler on my show. Amazing. And it's not the first time that I've sat down with Philip. I was asked to keynote in Caracas in Venezuela in about 2005, 2006. I had to deliver a three-hour seminar, and there were only two presenters, myself and you guessed it, Philip Kotler. And that's where the two of us were on equal billing, equal footing. And uh, I'll never forget sitting down with him on a deserted private penthouse bar in our hotel for about an hour and a half. And we just spoke and we spoke and we spoke. And you know what? He yeah. took notes like his life depended on it. And I wasn't taking any notes. And I realized how arrogant I was maybe, or just foolish, naive, whatever, coming out of it, which is this man in his 80s was still learning. Yeah. You know? And he even joked about it when I mentioned it on the show. He said, oh yeah, he said, I probably published it. You know, He still had a sense of humor that he was like, not only was I learning, but I probably was getting smarter and more profitable at your expense. <laughs> while you were just blah, 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 you know, and he was just like, come on, I'm, I'm a sponge, you know, suck it up, baby. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just funny how things worked out. Yeah. And it sounds like you had a really amazing full circle moment there. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. And it's always like uh, one of the biggest joys of my life is when you get to meet your heroes. It's a wonderful feeling. I mean, even I'm a huge English football fan and just over the years through my sons going, you know, to England. And, and by the way, for your, for your viewers and listeners, I'm from South Africa. It's just some people go, oh, like what part of England are you from? Uh, but going and, and meeting some of these players that I idolized. One of the craziest things is I took my son over and we, you know, had this uh, five course meal in the VIP hospitality suite. And one of the players, his name is Justin, Justin Edinburgh. My team is Tottenham Hotspur, Spurs. Mm. And I remember winning the FA Cup and Justin Edinburgh was in the side and the perception that I had of him. And I was just like, hey, Justin, I'm just, he, he was um, managing uh, like a, a second or third division team at the time. And I said to him, I'm just curious, like, how old are you? And he was my age. And I'm like, how can we be the same age? I mean, I remember as a kid or young teenager, just you were like a giant to me. And we just laughed about it. And unfortunately, he actually passed away uh, several months uh, afterwards, completely unexpected. But I'll never forget that moment connecting with him and realizing the perception that we have of the people we admire and, and learn from, it's so warped and distorted, sometimes in a very good way, that everything, space, time, age, you, know, you transcend it all. And so like two moments in my life where I've ended up on a somewhat equal footing, but it wasn't about superior or subordinate, it was just about connection. What would your younger self say 
if he could see you today and, and see the level of success that you've had, do you think he would be proud of you? I mean, it's an interesting question because normally, of course, which you know, the question is, what would you tell your younger self? And this is different. I mean, I think my younger self that hadn't realized potential yet probably would have been quite impressed. My younger self that look at me now might be a little bit uh, frustrated saying, like, surely you could have done more. You know, success is relative. What is success? What is, how do you measure success? For me, you know, it is about what is legacy, right? It's about being able to know that you changed the life of at least one person for the better, that you made your difference and made your mark. So if when I pass on, I leave something of substance behind, then I think my younger self would have been proud. If not, probably would have been disinterested and moved on and gone to, I don't know, open up another comic book or in today's terms, binge watch another series on Netflix. You've had an incredible career so far. At what point in your career did you shift from working for somebody else to becoming an entrepreneur? Because that's a pretty big leap. Why did you make that shift? And, and how did that make you feel to make that, that shift? I was laid off in 2002. I was at a company that I was thought that I would stay at for life, climb up the corporate ladder. There's the old saying, which is everybody feels that they're overworked and underpaid and underappreciated and are better than they are. And, and all of those did apply to me. I will just, you know, by the way, I was the exception, <laughs> but I was in a position where I thought that, you know, the keys to the kingdom were in the palm of my hand and, and I was just, you know, kicked to the curb for, and, and the thing is, it doesn't matter what the reasons are, whether it's like, oh, it was political and it was this and it was that. The fact is, it was a liberation on so many levels. And, and I will say two things. One is, you haven't really arrived, you haven't really grown as a business professional if you haven't experienced some kind of significant failure, rejection, adversity, or it's almost like a rite of passage to be laid off in these times, you know, because it's the corporation that sucks, not the employee, right? And so, if not for being laid off, I would not be an entrepreneur. None of this would have happened. So, you know, today when you fast forward and I've, it just happened again, I was laid off by a global pandemic. <laughs> well, I wasn't. I mean, I've been working for myself since. But, you know, when COVID hit and suddenly no one's hiring, no events are taking place, you know, no conferences are happening, no keynotes are, are happening for the most part. When it happened again, I didn't have to think about it. I knew how to react. You know, one of the things I've been saying is that 2020 sucked. 2021 is going to suck as well. But there's one big difference. We're better prepared for it. So, like, I mean, if you look at, the, at what happened in the U.S. on January 6th, or as I call it, December 37th, you know, <laughs> December 37th of 2020, I mean, you know, it was clear it was clear for anyone that thought that January 1st would magically dawn and everything would be okay that, that, you know, so, so I turned around and I've, you know, just being a little bit additionally irreverent, uh, I made that prediction. I said, you know, 2021 would suck, but we'd be better prepared for it. I said, well, I guess I was one for two because it appears we're still not prepared for it, but that's the point, right? What comes with age wisdom, and what is wisdom really? Wisdom is a combination 
of resilience mixed in with experience that allows us to be better prepared and equipped to handle the what comes next and offer that advice to others. You know, for me, the idea of working for someone, we all work for someone, whether it's our partner, our spouse, we're all working for someone, the man or the boss or whatever. I mean, to me, I'm less interested in that. I'm more, for me, it's more about this idea of surrounding yourself with people that you love, that you trust, that you respect. Um, because life is just too short to waste your time with people that don't have that backbone and integrity uh, and spine. I really believe that. So during the pandemic, you started something called Corona TV. Why did you start it? And what were you hoping to accomplish with it? You know, I don't even know what I was trying to accomplish from it. I definitely hadn't thought it through that far. You know, when you're in survival mode, you have two choices, which is survive or not. <laughs> and so for me, it was instinct. I think we'll discuss it. In Built to Suck, I, t I spoke about the survival instinct. So they say marketing is a muscle, right? Muscle, you train it, you break it down, you build it back, it atrophies, whatever. But survival is an instinct. The yeah. deer or the buck in the field, when a lioness is or a lion is bearing down on it, 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 uh, it darts in time or it's lunch. And the survival instinct is either based on what's called self-preservation, which is don't kill me, or adaptation, which is I'm going to kill you. Or if it comes down to you or me, you know, right. good luck. I was in South Africa visiting my mom who um, she's good, but, you know, four and a half years into, into, uh, into what is now a chronic bout of cancer or battle with cancer. And I was visiting her as I've been trying to do several times a year, if I'm able to. And I'm giving a presentation because I try to like, you know, kill two birds with one stone, as it were. Oh. Phone rings 10 minutes before it's my wife. It's like March 11th that she doesn't feel very well. She went to a party. You know, she's got all these symptoms. I said, you know, you have COVID, right? And she was like, no, I don't think it's COVID. I said, it's COVID. You better get tested. So she did, you know, she had COVID. Uh, so I come back from South Africa, March 11th or 12th, I think I get back, go straight into isolation, into quarantine, and suddenly... At the same time, all these speaking engagements and consulting engagements are getting canceled or frozen or whatever. So I just did two things that I knew how to do. One is help people and two was create content. And they said in the early months of this process, helping is the new selling. So for me, I was helping before I was selling. And, and I had no idea. There was no Corona TV. It was just Facebook Live. And then a week later, experimenting with Zoom. And then a, a week later, using a piece of software, which I describe as life-changing, which is StreamYard. But I went from, uh, is this thing on? Hello? Hello? Uh, am I live on Facebook? I, I went from that to, welcome to Corona TV. I'm your host with, with a logo and, and, and banners and overlays and, yeah. you know, and guests and everything in a period of about two weeks. Wow. So the learning curve was like hockey stick. But very early on in the process, I, I started to feel like some that I'd created something special, mainly because I, people were telling me things like, you're a really great interviewer. You have a gift. And I was like, I'm just trying to figure out, I'm just trying to do what you're doing right now. You know, like we're just trying to figure out how to, how to not look like an idiot, you know, on the other side of the screen. And 
it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks, which is this was my calling. This was yeah. this was my purpose. This was what I was meant to do on this earth. And so I decided I was all in on this, all in. Like, I hope I never have to consult another day of my life. Wow. This, this is what I was meant to do. It's an amazing feeling, the joy that comes from the fact that I have never worked this hard in my life. I have never been so happy uh, professionally, you know, in my life. Um, and I'm not necessarily even sure, quite, you know, people keep asking me, how are you going to monetize? And what are your views? I'm like, I have no idea what my views are because I'm not interested mm. in, in the views. I'm interested in perfecting my craft. And I know what I'm trying to build. I know what the outcome is. I know that whether it's CNN or CNBC or Cheddar, that's the goal. This is not the Joe Rogan experience. This is the Joe Jaffe experience. And if Spotify could pay him $150 million I'll take just a fraction of it. But I want to say one more thing. And I, I say this to everyone. How many episodes of the Joe Rogan experience had he done when he was syndicated or acquired or bought whatever by Spotify? So most people will say like 100 or 300 or 400. And so what's your guess? My, my guess is 1,000. Yeah, so you, you're closer to it. It was about 1,500 episodes. So I, I heard this piece of advice early on in this process. The advice was from someone who'd been streaming for a long time. And the advice was, if you're not prepared, if you're not prepared to commit to this for two years, come hell or high water, stop now. And so I was like, that is liberating for me. That, that was my liberation. I was like, all right, well, guess what? We are, we're in January 14th. We're 10 months into it. I've got 14 months to figure it out. 14 months right now. 14 months to answer the question about monetization and answer the question about views and hits and downloads and you know streams. And, and that for me was just the best, which is, if you understand the path that you're on, if I'm running a marathon and I know it's 26.2 miles, then I'm going to pace myself accordingly and I'm going to train accordingly and I'm going to make sure that I'm not sprinting too fast too soon. And that's the approach I've taken. Tell me about some of the guests you've had. You know, in no particular order, I've had Jamal Mashburn, you know, NBA legend and entrepreneur. I've had my favorite author in the whole world, James Rollins. I've had survivor winners. I've had uh, Joe Delagrave, who's a bronze Paralympian. I've had a whole host of C-suite executives like Mark Pritchard, who's the global CMO of Procter & Gamble. I've had pretty much every marketer out there or, or marketing guru or thought leader, you know, the Jay Bears and the Mark Schaefer's and the Mitch Joles and I've had, you know, entrepreneur extraordinaire, Bob Pearson, who we both know, in fact, Bob introduced us. And the list goes on, you know, on my birthday, as I said, I had uh, Seth Godin and Philip Kotler on the same show, which was just an absolute treat. And it's just been fantastic. You know, I've had, uh, I've had someone who, who uh, survived the, the Moonies cult. And, you know, what I love about it is for me, it's like my mental gymnastics. It's like, if it isn't interesting, then I failed. Mm -hmm. So it's not about whether they're interesting or not. Everyone is interesting. Everyone has a story. Everyone has a connection. My goal as an interviewer and a host is to find and make that connection. So that's why like every show is a, is a new challenge for me. And, you know, sometimes I have a bad show and I've actually said to people two pieces of advice. One is you have to forgive yourself. And the second is you need a bad show 
because it allows you and it helps you appreciate the good shows. And without a bad show every now and then, how on earth are you going to grow and triangulate and pivot and, and adjust? What are some of the things that you've been learning from your guests? You know, there are a lot of common threads or common themes. You know, one has been conscious capitalism or the evolution of capitalism, not socialism, but capitalism, the evolution. You know, we don't have to make so much money. We can actually make money and be happy and make the world a better place. They're not mutually exclusive. You know, I love talking about optimism and, and, and happiness and love. And, you know, Dr. Harry Cohen, who wrote the book, Be the Sun, Not the Salt. Today, I had Martin Lindstrom, who just put out a book called The Ministry of Common Sense. By the way, another tip, so this came through the show as well, hide self-view on Zoom, right? My self-view is hidden. I can't see myself right now. I can't fall in love with my own reflection right now. I can only fall yeah. in love with you <laughs> or your reflection, you know? So that's another thing as well. I wrote this in, in, I think, my second book, which was called Join the Conversation, or maybe my first book, which was called Life After the 30 Second Spot. I said, production is the new consumption. So when we are producing, we're actually consuming. When we research a blog post or a podcast or a guest, uh, we're learning from that research, but more importantly, from the actual, in our case, you know, I'm learning from you, you're learning from me. It's a wonderful, wonderful exchange. So for me, it's this idea that every day, I'm not the teacher, I'm the student as well. These are all lessons and learnings that have come through the show. What are some of the things that have been surprising to you? People are probably a lot kinder and nicer than maybe you think. It's unbelievable how gracious and generous people are with their time. My show is an hour and a half. It's actually more. I mean, it's, it's 10 minutes people come into the green room, you know, to do a tech check and chat a bit. The yeah. show itself is an hour. I only bring them on 10 minutes into the show. So I do a little monologue. And then there's a 30 minute Zoom after show, which by the way, talk about surprising. The Zoom after show, that's the ultimate surprise. It is therapy. It is cathartic. It is illuminating. We've ended up with a bunch of, I call it like a motley crew, like a bunch of misfits. We've got a, a, a curmudgeonly conservative. We've got an environmentalist. We've got a philosopher. The philosopher was a guest on my show and he won't go away. He just comes back every day to the after show. I'm not even joking. We've got a recovering douchebag, I mean, literally a guy who's just written a book, uh, his memoir, you know, the diary of a recovering douchebag. And there is just a dynamic between us. We know each other. We trust each other. We like each other. And we play off each other. And what has been the ultimate surprise is that more people that are watching the show don't come to the after show. And it's the weirdest thing because there's that old saying, which is the only thing worse than a completely overcrowded bar or, or club is a completely empty one, yeah. right? So we look at this and we think we've got this small intimate after show with eight people or six people yeah. or seven people, sometimes 13 people. And I just wonder why we don't have 3,000 people every day, mm. you know, every day being, imagine that being able to spend 30 minutes with over 188 guests and myself, right? The uh, booby prize and not want that exposure and that access and that ability to be on an equal footing. Yeah. But at the same time, and I'll just come full circle, Sometimes I worry that a guest is going to come to the after show and only see six or seven or eight people and think, am I wasting my time? 
but not one guest has ever left without going that was like so surprising so refreshing so incredible the intimacy and the the level of conversation the funny thing is be careful what you wish for i always tell people because uh, tomorrow if i was to start the after show and i would see 300 people trying to get in i wouldn't know what to do with it and then i would have to worry about being zoom bombed and i'll i'll just say one more thing it's funny how we're like spending so much time on this after show but the other day i heard this like we had this discussion which is enjoy it now enjoy the time now while it's quieter while it's smaller that's our lesson as well during covid enjoy the time when the world was a little bit more peaceful and and of course i'm not talking about rights right. in some levels it's not peaceful but the the solitude the peace of being in your own home with your own family away from the hustle and bustle we may never get this period again and and hopefully we won't get this again right. in terms of context of covid but we we're going to have to fight and strive to create these moments of peace in our life otherwise we'll go crazy I think that what you've created is something very special. Uh, I've had the opportunity to tune in to several of your uh, your episodes, and what you've created is something that's so sorely needed uh, in this day and age—a place for people to come and learn and process and to be mm-hmm. different, to be different from one another, and engage in a way that is non-threatening. And something that you said earlier really resonated with me, and it's one of the things I've been learning as well is that. If I were to align my life and really kind of tilt my perception of the world according to how the news presents it to me, I would be suicidal because that's not a true reflection of the world. I believe that there's a lot more love, there's a lot more goodness in the world than than the news will will actually portray, but you've definitely created something very special there. I'll just add that you know those points are are vital, but the fact that you even said it right now is more important and what i've learned and you know you going back to common threads which is we've discussed racial inequality and and social justice but we've also discussed ageism and you know the challenges and the transformation that men are going through you know in terms of traditional roles for men and and men learning how to adapt and needing to adapt as well so it works both ways the world needs equality inclusivity fairness on all sides but it also needs the sides that have struggled or the, not struggled i should say the sides that have had some kind of unfair advantage in the past not to be punished but to learn how to adapt one of the most simplest elements is the ability not to bottle stuff up cowboys don't cry that's that's rubbish it's the ability for us to express ourselves and demonstrate our vulnerability and i'll tell you people are still not ready for it i almost feel bad for people that had that had corporate jobs throughout covid i feel bad for people that their only change in their lifestyle was an inconvenience of staying at home mm. where they were you know they stayed at home in their mansions in their six and seven figure with their six and seven figure salaries and they never got to experience this life changing moment first hand and of course what i mean by that is if you weren't touched or changed in some way shape or form and you go back to taking advantage of people or cutting someone off on the road or taking someone's seat on the bus 
what did you learn? What did society learn? What did humanity learn? That's kind of where we are now. And it's not too late, right? It's not like it's not too late to pivot. It's I want to shift a little bit to the book that you just wrote. Why did you write Built to Suck? So, the, the, I mean, the book has been like, like unbelievably uh, prophetic. Sorry, I, I, uh, I dropped my prop uh, right now, which is my Lucille bat. Because remember, I spoke about Walking Dead. Right. So, you know, everyone has a pre-pandemic and a post-pandemic job. Um, but uh, this is how, this is how I, I ward off the zombies, you know, that are, that, that are at the corporate apocalypse. Um, you know, I wrote this book um, because it was clear to me that something was significant was happening in the corporate landscape. I will say two things. One is I remember the the spark, the catalyst was I was in my daughter's classroom and there was, and the chart is actually in, in the book. There's a map of 5,000 years of history and it shows it's color coded by, by continent and it shows the rise and fall of civilizations, dynasties, empires, Ming, Ottoman, Roman, Egyptian, you know, Nazi Germany, you name it. Every single one of these arrogant, you know, hubristic societies, cultures, empires that were delusional, that thought they could rule the world and live forever. And it's so ironic, by the way, I'll just say this, which is when you look on the extreme right of this chart, there is Russia, which used to be USSR. There is China that could be going through a lot of changes post-COVID when the world fairly or unfairly decides to hold China accountable. And then at the bottom is this little purple blip called USA. And by the same token, if no man lives forever, if no empire or dynasty or civilization lives forever, how arrogant are we to think that a country or, you know, or that a region, look, look at Brexit, for God's sake, you know, in, in Europe, it's happening in front of our eyes right now. And I wrote this book a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, it, it feels so current, and it feels like it was yesterday. So if all of that applies, well, then it has to apply to a company, 120 years old, set in its ways with all this you know, bureaucracy, red tape and politics and silos and dysfunction. So this book was written because I saw the end of this corporate world, you know, where, where the, the, the business model of big business is broken, where the very thing that helped these companies grow, because it's about growth, the very thing, size, scale, economies of scale, efficiencies of scale, you know, being a blue chip multinational global brand with all these networks and resources has now become a growth inhibitor is, is, is the albatross around its neck because they're slowing down when the world is speeding up and they've just lost their competitive edge. You know, we are in the entrepreneurial revolution. We're not in a corporate evolution. And even since the book was written, I mean, we've seen several companies that I even put on the cover of the book. There was Kodak and there was Blockbuster and there was, you know, Toys R Us. But there was also, and I just did that very tongue-in-cheek, you know, the likes of McDonald's and GM. And guess what? There's Sears and JCPenney on the cover, you know, many months later. So it became kind of obvious to me that we were living through a massive, massive change without even getting into, you know, the rise of the Instagram merchant or, or millionaire. You know, a lot of people say that COVID was the great 
digital transformer, you know, chief transformation officer. And that is not true. All COVID did was accelerate, was, you know, as I call it, digital catch up. And what COVID has done is it has accelerated demise and it has accelerated growth. So some companies have figured it out. The companies that came into this with a plan, with a plan B, with that buffer, and for the rest are, are falling by the wayside. So what about like these really, really large companies like Apple and Google and Amazon and Disney, for example? Are they also inevitable? Inevitable. Well, you know, as, as I wrote in the book, you know, the, se- the second horseman is age. If you think about the, you know, the crotchety, sickly set in their ways, you know, get off my lawn, you know, that it's, it's kind of that analogy. People asked me that question. They said, well, what about Amazon? What about Google? What about Facebook? And I said, well, Facebook already sucks. So let's just, you know, put that out there, right? Um, but, but then, you know, I'll, I'll read you the inside cover. This was, this was my moment of Zen, almost a couple of days before the book goes to print. And I made sure that I actually put this on the inside cover. In late 2018, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos addressed his entire staff in an all-hands meeting. Amazon will fail and go bankrupt one day, he said. Your job is to delay this for as long as possible. And I was like, wow. If he could say that about Amazon, then what company on this planet would that not apply to? And of course, when you look at these gigantic companies now, you know, the 800-pound gorilla is the 8,000-pound gorilla. But they're going to go through some real pain points with respect to, I mean, we saw advertiser boycotts during, you know, uh, leading up to, to the general election here in the U.S. But more importantly, you know, antitrust efforts. You know, Amazon has had some severe allegations uh, against it, especially with respect to the fact you've got these merchants on Amazon and Amazon's just looking at the data and looking at who's growing and just coming up with an Amazon white label brand. They're all connected. The kiss of death for a corporation is being a public company. Because the minute that happens, I, I talk about short termitis. The minute that, that a company becomes public, that company is beholden to external shareholders, quarterly earnings, and short term thinking. And that is the beginning of the end. So in order to suck less, you know, the key to success is to suck less. Well, that's just short term, just suck a little bit less than your opposition. But ultimately, what companies have got to be able to figure out, you can't reverse time, right? You can't, you know, size can be a strength, especially if you use it to change the world. Age is relative. The Business Roundtable has come out recently with this idea that the purpose of a corporation is to serve all stakeholders, not just external shareholders. So if a company can live that idea, every stakeholder, customers, employees, partners, vendors, community, and shareholders, and then of course, the fourth one is culture. So the keys to thrival or return to growth are, you know, I'll mention them quickly. One one is being able to kind of, you know, see off those horsemen, you know, with with the bat. Number two is a concept that I talk about called embrace your heresy, which just basically like a heretic would is turn your back on your customer, fire your customer or uh, leave money on the table. What if you fired yourself? What if you, you know, funded your, I come up with these 10 heresies. Each one of them sounds more insane than, than the next or the previous one, but they've all happened. 
leaving money on the table, slaughtering the cash cow. Well, what did Netflix do when they shipped their billionth DVD? They shut it down. They turned their back on the cash cow. What did REI do on Black Friday? You know, the most successful shopping day on the calendar? They said, get outside. We're closing our store. We're all about outdoors. Connect with your family. How ironic and, and, and you know, foretelling that was that now Black Friday is not a thing anymore. A, because of COVID, but B, post-COVID, Black Friday is not going to be what it used to be in this age of materialism. Finally, four growth pillars, which are digital disruption, custom obsession, talent resurrection, and corporate citizenship. So just my take on, on digital disruption or you know transformation, customer service, but I call it obsession. So does Jeff Bezos. Uh, talent, which is all about, you know, I say ban the employee. Like we should stop thinking of our lifeblood, our talent as employees punching in, punching out. And then corporate citizenship is the theme that we discussed about uh, the evolution of capitalism. What can companies and organizations do to get a realistic appraisal of where they are in that process? I mean, the first, the first is always, I mean, it's introspection and self-reflection, but, but is, is to audit. I mean, you can audit a lot of this. You know, mm-hmm. um, I've come up with a lot of these frameworks um, in the book that actually talk about how to do these audits. You don't need me to be able to do these for you. Mm-hmm. But you can look at how you score and how you, how you stack up against those four growth pillars. And those growth pillars have to be over-delivered against. Mm-hmm. You know, you can uh, identify some of these heresies and be able to uh, map them out. But, but I actually created something called the Survival Planning Canvas that just uses, you know, the Business Planning Canvas um, of the whole lean startup movement. And it's a one pager document, or it's not even a document, it, it, it is a canvas that allows you to fill in and go through your headwinds, your tailwinds, your North Star, your competitive set, which is a slightly different. I break competitive down into three categories. Um, the incumbents, which are the usual suspects, the challenges, which are the high growth or fast moving challenges, typically startups, but then the incubators, the ones that are still on napkins and you know, and starting out because, the, because these are the companies that you might buy or more importantly, the companies that might buy you. And then on the bottom of the canvas, are two things. One of them is this whole idea of the heresy, right? It's put yourself out of business, walk the plank, as I call it. And then the other one is discover new world. So there are a bunch of exercises like magic wand, right? If you rubbed a lamp and and a genie appeared and gave you three wishes, what would you wish for professionally? If you had an unlimited budget or blank check, what would you spend it on? And then the third one is if you could start it all over again, what would you do? It's so important to think about because right now, when you think about JetBlue, when you think about you know these airlines, when you think about some of these inspir- uh, ally or inspiration, these banks, why do they do well? Why are they growing? Why are they so fresh? Because they're not starting with legacy and incumbency and baggage. They're just starting off saying, you know, again, going goes back to common sense. If you were starting a business today, would you do it the way that you've always been doing it? Hell no. So is there a point of no return for a company? Like, what are the signs of that? Well, there might be. There was actually a study that that I cite in the book that actually shows that for companies that have had 20% total shareholder 
total shareholder return, TSR. But for companies that have declined in 20% or more TSR year on year, so for two consecutive years, and this was a study done over 20 years and all Fortune 2000 companies or global 2000 companies. So every company, 2000 largest companies across 20 years, Mm -hmm. only 5% of them returned to their earlier levels. So there is this idea when the rot sets in. Now that's 20% and then another 20% the next year. But then they do it as well for 10% and 10%. That is absolutely uh, the point of no return. But in many cases, it comes down to, you know, the boiling frog syndrome. The saddest part is that most of these companies don't even realize they're like, you know, I'm feeling very comfortable right now. But, you know, the enemy of innovation is comfort. And that oftentimes is the beginning of the end. Where do you think the rot is in a lot of these companies? I have a little little bit of a, just a, a little tangent, which is I, I, d- I decided that I would never, ever say to someone again, well, that's a good question. That's a great question because I find it to be like very patronizing. And often the question isn't really a great question. So it's like, <laughs> screw you. Like, the, you, know, you don't, I know it's a great question. I asked it, but, um, but, but what I would start to say is that's a question I haven't been asked before. In this case, you asked a different question in a different way. So I believe that the rot in a company, well, I mean, a lot of it is culture related, but the rot is in the core, it's middle management. Now, when I said you asked a different question in a different way, a lot of people ask me the question, how do we sell this through to senior management? How do we sell this to our boss? And my answer is, there actually are four cells. There are four directions that change has to happen in and through and, and from. Top down, sure, you got to sell it through top management because it's got to trickle down. Bottom up, which is you know your lifeblood, your entry level, your Zoomers, whatever you want to call them, you know Gen Z. But the rock face, right? The rock face. Outside in, you know whether it's shareholders, stakeholders, or journalists, or thought leaders, or just getting fresh thinking people like you and me, right? With so that we are writing and and streaming and commenting favorably on what a company is doing versus write about them in built to suck. But inside out is the rot of middle management. It's not to say that middle management are rotten, but they've been left behind. They're stuck in the middle. And that change has to happen from inside. They're the ones that that aren't any closer to the golden, you know, to the parachutes, to counting down the days for retirement. They're the ones that are being kicked to the curb and finding themselves in their mid-40s and mid-50s and even 60s saying, we have no more choice. We have no more options. We're completely stuck now. Um, we thought we'd, this company would be loyal to us. So they're the ones that are going to resist change as well. The other day on the show, it was a nice little debate with Seth Godin himself, where I said, I always believed that my biggest fear is that I would get to 50 and not have any choice or options in life. That this was my biggest fear, that as you get older, you get less and less options. You're 20, the world is in the palm of your hands. You know, you you can go anywhere you want, you can do anything you want. And Seth disagrees with that. And you know what? So do I, because I've learned actually, you have more options. Absolutely. You have more options. And when you look at companies that were started by 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds, there are so many examples. Just go and Google them and you can actually see that, you know, being a middle manager today, it used to be uh, a curse. It's not. It's a blessing. So that's the message to middle managers out there. But also if you are on the top or wherever else, 
figure out how to harness this, this dormant power and turn it from a rot you know, into something that can be a salvation for your company. I want to do something a little bit different. And this is a bit of an experiment. So I'll, I'll ask for your forbearance and, and appreciate your, uh, your, your playing along. I, I love experiments. <laughs> so I want to I want to do something called uh, called speed round, and I'm going to say the name of a of a company or a person in the news, uh, or not in the news, uh, and and I want you to tell me the first word that comes to mind when I when I say that word. Okay. Okay. The first word, Kodak. Relic. Blockbuster. Arrogant. Blackberry. Culture. Blackberry was part of our culture. It was, you know, Crackberry. I mean, people spoke about their Crackberry. How did right. they lose that? How did they lose that advantage of being so darling? Like what went wrong? Like to me, it's just like a, yeah. you know, it's, it's to have that, to, to have it and lose it is so tragic. IBM. Big Blue. HP. Awesome. Procter and Gamble. Traditional. Apple. Seamless. Tesla. I would say future. CDC. Beleaguered. <laughs> Donald Trump. Hmm. Gotta be hubris. Joe Biden. Boring. His slogan in four years' time is four bore years. So I mean it boring in a good way. We, we don't need drama anymore. No more drama, please. Just give me boring. Elon Musk. Enigma. Steve Jobs. Maniacal. Kim Jong-un. Tiny. <laughs> Amazon. River. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, ubiquitous. Mm. Disney. Magical. Awesome. So I want to transition and ask you some general questions. If you could share one secret of your success, what would that be? Well, I'll tell you, I like, I've through this period come up with this three-pronged piece of advice, which is as simple as uh, love what you do, be true to yourself, and stay the course. That's it. That's my new formula for success. What is the greatest lesson you've learned either in life or in business? I think it comes back to time. I mean, hasn't time been the great equalizer, right? But, you know, but it's also time and perspective and, and everything's relative. It all fits together, right? You think you're richer, you think you're rich, someone's richer. You think you're poor, someone's poorer. You think you're sick, someone's sicker, right? You think you're successful, someone's more successful. So, so part of that is to be happy with, to, to be content, to be at peace with your life. But for me, like back to time, it's never, it's never too late. You know, in a year's time, you're going to wish that you took my advice and you took, you know, your advice and started your show or made the leap or made the change. You know, so that's, that's the lesson. You're 50 years old, you want to start a streaming show, you can do it. Well, I started at 49, right? But it's all relative. What do you want most for your life? I, for me, I, I've always said professionally, I've, I've said it somewhat, somewhat tongue in cheek, but there is some truth to it, which is I, I want a Wikipedia entry. I mean, I feel like I've, I feel like I've done enough. Um, and it's not about, you know, it's not about status or 
ego. It's just about knowing that I, that I made a mark. Like I want to, you know, nothing would please me more, even if I didn't make a penny from it, than one of my textbook, one of my books to become a textbook for everyone in an, you know, I, I, I've been told countless times, built to suck should be mandatory for every single MBA you know, student in this kind of, I would love that. I would love that the, you know, the, the Wikipedia entry to say, you know, he created the flipped funnel, which is, you know, the first model of its kind and the flipped funnel and the traditional funnel together makes the marketing bow tie. First time that acquisition and retention had ever been put together. So that's what I want. I think it's a, it's not, it's not insecurity or it's just the ability to be acknowledged uh, and respected for my contributions. It's less about chest beating and it's more just about knowing that that I made a difference. Are there any final thoughts that you wanna share with us? I just wanna open up the floor for you, just to, anything else that's on your mind. I've, I've loved uh, the conversation. I would say, you know, for people that are out there that are stuck at home or stuck in general, make use of this time. You don't need another global pandemic to invent or reinvent yourself. Sometimes it helps to be pushed. I was in my career, I was again this time. So, you know, who am I to now say, you don't need a global pandemic, but some people do, but you really don't. You really can just, you know, just do it. Greatest marketing tagline and piece of advice, personally, professionally, for anyone in the world at any point in time ever, right? And so I would say right now, if you're not ready to blow everything up and start again, you don't. But if you're looking for inspiration, come on over and, and join this Corona TV movement or community. You know, it's for now it's free. And even if it isn't, it's probably going to be five bucks on Patreon. So, you know, it's not going to break the bank. But but really we've we've been able to create, I've been able to create and my regulars have been able to create something really, really special. The last point is just to say to people, you're not alone. You never were and you never will be. And the thing that's so amazing is right now, you and I, right, Mark, you and I, we're, we're, we're four feet apart. You know, this is what I learned from David Meerman Scott, who was on the show. We are four feet apart. That is about as intimate as you can get. If we could reach out, we could shake hands. We could right. high five one another. This is this is an inner circle, right? This is what's known as personal space. Yeah. So even though people are going through Zoom fatigue and all of this, you can still find these amazing moments to connect uh, at the most profound, deepest level. Take advantage of it. Thank you so much. This, this conversation, Joseph, has been absolutely amazing and enlightening and just I mean, incredible. I mean, to, to have you on uh, the show ha has, has just been amazing. Um, and I, I, I hope to continue the conversation. <laughs> Where can people find and connect with you online? My website, my, my relic speaker website is josephjaffe.com. I still have not changed it since COVID hit. So you will not see anything there about me being the world's greatest virtual speaker. I don't want to be a virtual speaker. I want to be a real speaker, right? I'm at Jaffe Juice on pretty much every uh, social media channel, I spend a lot more time these days on like an Instagram uh, than I do on anything else, but, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, you know, coronatv.show or jaffyjuice.tv. That's where you can subscribe to the show every day, 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. Um, and then the after show, which begins at 1 p.m. Fantastic. Joseph, you deserve a Wikipedia entry. 
you know, from your mouth to God's ears one day, <laughs> you know, at least, you know, like when you introduced me at the beginning as a serial entrepreneur, I'm like, at least it doesn't say serial killer. So, you know, I might have a better chance of getting that Wikipedia entry if I was a serial killer, but you know, whatever, I'm going to, I'm gonna, patience, patience, patience is a virtue. This has been fantastic. Joseph, thank you so much.